0: Broadcasting worldwide via the Internet from Lakeland, Florida, this is Whitfield Radio's Calvinism Today program. And now, here is your host, the founder and president of Whitfield Theological Seminary and senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Lakeland, Florida, Dr. Kenneth G. Talbot.
1: Welcome back to our podcast, Calvinism Today. This show is dedicated to the preservation of historic Calvinistic theology in our churches. We shall also deal with the misconceptions of Calvinism and the continual drifting of those who call themselves Calvinists away from Calvinistic doctrine, proving that they're not really Calvinistic at all. My co-host is Dr. Matthew McMahon, president of A Puritan's Mind, a website dedicated to maintaining the teachings of the Reformed and Puritan teachings. Welcome back, Dr. Matt, and thank you for your participation
2: on our show. Well, thank you for having me again. Excited to be here. Look forward to talking about Calvinism.
1: Our producer is Dr. Bill Sullivan, and Dr. Bill, we're glad to have you back with us also.
0: Hey, I enjoy being a part of this operation. I uh, have lots of things to think about after the first show, lots of questions, a lot of other things that I would like to hear discuss, so I'm looking forward to the show today.
1: Our show today is entitled, The Roots of Calvinistic Theology. Remember, this show is dedicated to the topic of Calvinism. And so we're going to go back and look at the underlying teachings that we find in the early church. We don't have time to develop all of it, but to show that the essence of Orthodox Evangelical Protestantism as it is structured and developed over time as it is entitled Calvinism what it actually consists of so we won't really define Calvinism in a one soundbite type way but rather it's going to take time to go through and look at those doctrines as they were developed during the Reformation going back to this principal teaching of the Apostles and the Apostolic Fathers in the early church. Now I realize the name tag Calvinism will not be found in the early church since Calvin himself would not appear on the scene for a little bit better than 1400 years. However, some of the doctrines can expressly or even by implication be found in the early church in what I would call seed form. Dr. Matt, how important is it that we go back and identify these doctrinal teachings in the early history of the church? You've mentioned in our first show the importance of historical theology. Would you like to comment
2: on that? Well, yes. Uh, Simply, the gospel itself has never been hidden. So, throughout the preaching of the gospel in any age, we should always be able to see the truth of the gospel in its very old doctrinal facets in every age of the church. So God has not given the early church a different gospel than the Reformers or for us today. There's one Christ, one gospel. I think uh, sometimes the idea of using the term Calvinism, and and you alluded to it a little bit, but I think I'd I'd like to just point this out as something to be clear on. Uh, Calvinism, in the context that we're talking about it, with these early church fathers and the early church and some of these quotes that we might be looking at today, we're not talking about all of the varied facets of Calvinism that Calvin taught in the institutes of the Christian religion. If somebody is going to be a Calvinist in that particular way, you're talking about lots of different doctrinal points. I think for us right now, we're talking about Calvinism in the way that the church today has equated that with the doctrines of grace. So we're talking about the five points, Calvinism, the doctrines of grace, what salvation is, what the gospel is that way. So it's very important that those doctrines can be expressly or by implication be found in the early church, as you said, in seed form, because it's the gospel. We have to remember that we're showing
1: also that the ideas of what we now call Calvinism are not new, that's what we're really trying to express here, I believe, but have been within the church from its earliest beginnings. Dr. Matt, let's begin with the doctrine of predestination and election. You know, Irenaeus taught that, quote, God predetermines all things for the perfection of man and for the bringing about and manifestation of his dispositions that goodness may be shown in righteous judgment perfected and the church conformed to the image of his son. He goes on to state later, when the number is completed that he had predetermined in his own counsel, all those who have been enrolled for life will rise again. Dr. Matt, what's your thoughts here on Irenaeus?
2: teaching irenaeus had a lot of doctrine to teach on both predestination and covenant theology as well which rests on god's redemptive purposes in christ and it's plain in reading irenaeus that he taught the biblical doctrine of predestination in passages like this one Uh, god did by his most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. In other words, God predetermines all things. So whether you quote Westminster or whether you quote Irenaeus, you have the same result. The church being conformed to the image of God's Son.
1: The emphasis being the fact that God is sovereign. You know, Calvin said that uh, in his thought the sovereignty of God was central to understanding all of the other doctrines within the structure of systematics, especially in salvation. I mean, most people, you say Calvin, they automatically think predestination. Calvin believed that the sovereignty of God is one of those aspects of doctrine that is so essential to understanding the rest. And here Irenaeus has that very same emphasis. It is a sovereign God who is able to decree all that comes to pass in the life of man. The comprehensiveness of that decree is very important in the development that comes later over the issues of Calvinism as it relates to predestination. Because as you know, Dr. Matt, the church got into a basic discussion over whether or not God predetermines... Redemption from either an infra or superlapsarianistic approach. But we'll talk about that when the time comes to it. Another early church father, Clement of Alexandria, wrote, It is not becoming that a friend of God, whom God has predestined before the foundation of the world to be put into the high adoption of children, should fall into pleasures and fears and be unemployed in restraining the passions. Here you have with Clement a strong statement about the fact that God has predestined individuals to become adopted children of God, heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And then how that those who see that, it ought to affect the way they govern and restrain their life. Dr. Matt comments.
2: Well, Clement is teaching that if a person has been changed by God and he's predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, that he should bear Christian fruit those that God has saved and changed should not fall into the pleasures of the world or, as he says, unrestrained passions. They're going to be different kinds of people as a result of what God sovereignly has done in predestinating them to be changed and adopted as children.
1: And it isn't interesting how that in this early time of the church, they are equating and understanding that with the work of God in salvation, that lives have to be altered. You cannot have come into a relationship with God and have a relationship without the transformation of one's lifestyle. You know, the early church was very comprehensive about that. As a matter of fact, to some extent, you see that shift toward more of the practical side when you get to medieval theology in the way that many of the medieval theologians looked at uh, the church's teaching on the doctrines of how we ought to live our life and stay away from the world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But with Clement, you have this balancing view here. God works in you. That work, as you said, must bear fruit. And today, we don't even find that in many churches that are called evangelical or fundamental churches. You hear about redemption that is fruitless. Some refer to it as being able to have redemption without the lordship of Christ. What's your thoughts on that?
2: Well, it's the inability to escape what sound doctrine is about. I mean, you know, it's like you had mentioned a moment ago about Irenaeus. You know, our God is in the heavens, he doth whatsoever he pleased. When Irenaeus speaks about uh, salvation and God being the one who's in the heavens doing whatsoever he pleases, Psalm 115 is going to mean the same thing to every, unrege- uh, to every regenerated Christian throughout the history of the church. Uh, it doesn't change that way. If a person has been changed and predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, he's going to bear Christian fruit. Clement is going to believe that. Irenaeus is going to believe that. Every regenerated Christian is going to believe that. Absolutely. Clement of Rome. He wrote this, Dr. Matt.
1: Day and night, you were anxious for the whole brotherhood so that the number of God's elect might be saved. Here, the emphasis of that subcategory of predestination, the electing love of God. You know, Dr. Matt, it's important to see that perhaps not in a systematic structure in the early apostolic writings you will find an accumulation of doctrine. I think you see that more when you get to the time of Augustine and what were probably considered the systematic theologians of the church of the latter part of the 3rd century. But it's interesting that they recognize these doctrines and here you have an understanding that there is a number of God's elect. That that elect will be saved. They will come to him.
2: What's your concept of what Clement is saying? It's the uh, election is taught all through Scripture. Almost every book in the Bible speaks about election or teaches it uh, outrightly. I think there may be one or two books that don't specifically use the word, but Clement Mm -hmm. rightly states that God's elect are going to be saved. And And the word might here is not might like, well, you know, maybe they will be. Maybe they won't be. It's used idiomatically. The word might is not maybe possibility, but the outcome of a predetermined act. So Clement is uh, inescapably dealing with election because you can't read the Bible without seeing it somewhere, someplace, every other chapter.
1: Right. He's not arguing that some elect might not be saved, but he's just simply saying this was God's purpose in his election to bring the saved unto himself. Um, through it Uh, yeah, the
2: entirety of God's people uh, in his term the whole brotherhood all of God's elect are going to be saved that's correct Uh, Hermas
1: wrote God removes the heavens mountains, hills, and seas so that all things become plain to his elect so that he may bestow on them the blessing which he hath promised them now Methodius, he writes When the predestined number of men will be fulfilled, men will afterwards abstain from the generation of children. Dr. Matt, two things are addressed here. One, the consummation of the elect. And second, the abstaining from the generation of children. Would you comment on those two statements?
2: Well, upon the fulfillment of those who are predestined and in the consummation or at the consummation of all things, the elect in heaven... Or those who will be in the heavenly realm the earth being renewed as god sees fit in that time to uh, as i would say merge the dimensions of heaven and earth completely together and make them fulfilled and perfect yes uh, the elect will be like the angels in heaven are now as jesus says so we're not going to be married we're not going to be given in marriage Thus, the need to procreate and subdue the earth is going to be finished uh, right now, the cultural mandate is to procreate and subdue the earth, but at that time it's com- it will be completed with the consummation of bringing all of the elect of God's people into his presence forever.
1: Yeah, well, you know, he, he brings here also the implied understanding that God has a purpose in his created order. The idea of an ongoing procreation that never ends, is a denial that God has any purpose. The only type of theology that could fit within that would, of course, be something akin to Arminian, but probably less Arminian than that, more to a Pelagian concept. Because the idea is basically man is ongoing, governing, and those principles never end. The purpose of God only can be interpreted as men, which gives rise to existentialism. When men begin to see that there is no purpose apart from what man himself makes. That's what existentialism teaches. That there is no purpose in the world, there is no purpose, there is no consummated end of history. History will only become, and the future is, what we determine it ought to be. That's the philosophical approach of existentialism, which has been widely adopted in that mentality within the church. And then with that, you get these denials of resurrection... Hmm. The denial of judgment, final judgment, uh, of Christ coming to forever dwell with his elect in their resurrected form. The transformation of heaven and earth is spurned in the fact that they believe we're already into that. So, you know, it's interesting that he understands that there is a consummation coming. That God's purpose will see fulfillment. It does not go, uh, on and on. Ad nauseum, it just doesn't continue that way. It is an ongoing principle in which there is no purpose of God, and it never sees an end. But end is essential, even in the concept of creation. The fact that He brings that out to me, where He says the number of the men will be fulfilled, the number of the elect, essentially, is what He's saying. Of course, will come to its consummation. It will end. And, of course, men then will abstain from generation of children, which you've explained, as there is no longer need for procreation. But I think it's interesting that they're dealing with things that a lot of people in the church today never even think about to a great extent.
2: Definitely. Even as uh, as Peter talks about God is not slacking concerning His promise, a lot of times people look at that uh, in a exegetically poor way, um, because they think that, as as Peter says, as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering toward us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Uh, actually, what uh, is being commented on by Methodius here is exactly what Peter is talking about in 2 Peter three nine, and has absolutely nothing to do with what Arminianism regularly teaches in thinking that You know, God is uh, waiting around, hoping that people would uh, not perish and come to him and, and how the Arminians deal with that particular verse. But in keeping in context of what Peter's talking about and what Methodius is commenting on, that, you know, God has a specific agenda and he is not slow simply because Jesus hadn't returned at the particular time that the apostles thought he was going to return a bit quicker than he did or as he is going to, and uh, so he, he's saying that some men count that slackness or that slowness of the consummation of all ages as being something that's a problem, and Peter's saying that it's not. Right. Why Why isn't it? Well, because he's waiting. He's not waiting in the sense that the Arminians are saying, so, well, I'm, uh, I'm waiting for someone to come to me, I'm waiting for the elect to come in. He's long-suffering in that time, that he's not willing that he should stop the way that the world is working right now to have his elect procreate and create godly seed that all of the number of the elect would be brought in. And that us word, that particular term that Peter's talking about there, it's, it's us all the way through. The Lord is not slack concerning his problem, uh, his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us. That is the church, not willing that any, that is us, should perish, but that all, that is us, should come to repentance. So exactly what Peter said, Methodius is, is commenting on, that the predestination is set on a particular number of people and that people is not that that number is not going to diminish those people or make it greater it's not going to change and once that's finalized all will have come to repentance because god is not long suffering simply to be long suffering he has a particular agenda that he's dealing with and he's not willing that any of his people be lost and that all of them will come to repentance so i i find that you know, even in dealing with good exegesis around passages that are difficult for Arminians to deal with today, that Methodius had it right so long ago.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Origin, let's move on to another early church father. In his commentary on Romans, wrote the following, All these things look this way, that the apostle may prove that if either Isaac or Jacob for their merits had been chosen to those things which they, being in the flesh, sought after, And by the works of the flesh had to be justified, then the grace of their merits might belong to their posterity of the flesh and blood also. But now, since their election does not rise from works, but from the purpose of God, again, the emphasis of the purpose of God, from the will of him that calleth, he who calls men to himself, the grace of the promise is not fulfilled in the children of the flesh but in the children of God, that is, such who likewise as they may be chosen by the purpose of God and adopted as
2: sons. Your thoughts? Well, keep in mind that Origen had quite a few bad theological views. uh, To say the least. (laughs) Yeah, to say the least, through his writings. But uh, again, I think this is really, really good to be able to quote Origen this way because on Doctrines of the Scripture uh gives us that are so blatantly and so readily taught it's impossible to escape or or you're just simply going to neglect them and not deal with them. So Origen in being such a prolific writer on the Bible taught predestination because every book in the Bible teaches predestination and election. Uh, you've got here some really great thoughts that he has Uh, in dealing with things that many people today, theologians, scholars, people who are writing on the subject, are just rejecting and throwing away. He talks about the grace of their merits might belong to the posterity of flesh and blood also, but now since their election does not rise from works, from the purpose of God and so forth, as you said, uh, the idea of merit and what merit is and what Adam merited for us in the fall and what Christ merits for us and how our works are only as filthy rags which cannot merit eternal life and instead we rely on the merits of what christ accomplished uh we who are given that gift that grace of the promise it's not anything that we can do in our flesh just as Romans says it's not anything that the twins did good or bad nothing that they could have worked but according that god's promise according to election might stand the children of God, that is, they are those that are chosen by the purpose and power of the sovereignty of God and adopted by him in Christ. So the whole idea of merit is something that we really need to hash out and go back to when we talk about predestination because it's so neglected today just in general. And Origin had it right. I think
1: that, that you make a very good point in, in light of the fact of
2: the various
1: teachings of origin that are highly questionable, I mean, very questionable, rejected even by our confessions. But he was so, he's seen so clearly from the scripture, this doctrine of predestination, of the divine purpose of God, that God's purposes must come to pass. They consume us. We cannot resist the will of God. It's interesting to see how that it is so clear and made manifest, as you said, throughout the scripture that he cannot but comment upon it. Origen was a brilliant man. That doesn't mean brilliant men are always right. But what is interesting is the perception of that brilliant man that the clarity of predestination comes through to him. And he knows there's no way you can deny that. Correct. Basil the Great wrote in his homilies on the Psalms, and I quote, No man calls the people of the Jews blessed, but the people which is chosen best out of all peoples. We are the people whom he hath chosen for an inheritance for himself, a nation truly because we are gathered out of many nations, a people cast away, and because many are called, but few are chosen. What's your thoughts on Basil's statement here?
2: Well, election here, both summarizing the Old Testament and quoting Christ, Basil hits the mark. Uh, he's quoting Matthew twenty-two fourteen. Many are called, but few chosen. So God chooses specifically a people for himself. Even though the gospel may go out and may fall upon the ears, uh, even if we were going to say it this way, on every single person in the history of the church for all time everywhere, you still have a particular group of chosen people in which God chooses out for himself an inheritance to make his name great. You know, Dr. Matt, something else that I see in this statement by Basil
1: is this. Early on here, he has identified the Jews as the people of God. A nation that God has chosen. But out of all the nations, he continues his church with people who have been elected. That the church of the old does not end, but it manifests itself as the church of the new. It's a continuation. We teach that in covenant theology. While the administrations differ, the essence of the church, the way of redemption, does not change. The church of Jesus Christ is one church from beginning of creation to the end and consummation of this creation. And he notes that By implication, when he says, no man calls the people of the Jews blessed, but the people which is chosen best out of all peoples, that is, out of all the peoples of the world, whether it's tribe, kindred, it does not matter. We are the people. He says, as the church of Jesus Christ, we are the people whom he hath chosen for an inheritance for himself. We've become a nation. We are continuing not the state of Israel, but we're continuing that nation of believers as many nations, gathered out, as he says, many nations, a people cast away, and because many are called, but few are chosen. I think that's an interesting implication in the early church. One that, if followed through, clearly leads us to understand the nature that dispensational itself really was not understood in the early church. That kind of teaching. That sure. there is one church of the Old Testament and there is a, another church of the New. Here you have one of the early fathers saying, there's only ever been one church and the only can the true church now, the church of the New Testament, can look back and say the Jews of the Old Testament were blessed. Because we continue to be that people. They are our church and we are the continuation of that church. Not a new church, but one church. And I, say, I find that very interesting that you have such a statement early on, in the recognition of that. Of course, we know that many of this, much of this, is coming out of, of uh, apostolic teaching from the New Testament. Paul talks about the fact that you know there are two sheepfolds that have to be brought together as one, and Christ is the one who brings them together. That um, they come through the electing grace of God. Paul gives us that illustration. He explains salvation Romans one through eight. And then he talks about historical redemption, that is the historical redemptive story beginning in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of how that work of electing grace has brought the people from and on through, beginning with Abraham, this people identified as the covenant people of God, all the way through to the time period that Paul says, and will carry it on till the end of the consummation of history. I just find that quite interesting that here you have in the early church a man who sees... By way of implication in his statement that the church is not twofold, Mm. but it's one church, maybe with two administrations, clearly, but one church and one people. So you mean the church didn't begin in Acts? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I love it. Another one, Hillary the deacon wrote. That's not Hillary Clinton, by the way. That's Hillary the deacon wrote in his commentary on Second Timothy, and I quote, God of his own free grace of old decreed to save sinners and predestinated how he should be recovered, in what time and by whom and in what way they might be saved, so that they who are saved are not saved by their own merit or by those by whom they are called, but the grace of God. The gift appears in being bestowed through faith in Christ. Now, Dr. Matt, that is a really unbelievably clear statement about salvation. Your
2: thoughts? Are you sure you didn't lift that from Calvin's Institute somewhere? <laughs> See the interesting part is he's commenting on Second Timothy one nine, uh-huh. who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So it's an it's unavoidable. People are saved based on God's decree. He determines their time of salvation specifically based on what. Christ did on the cross so the gift of salvation the outworking of election is given by grace through faith same information that's taught in the Reformation, same information that you're going to see being taught by the Puritans being preached by reformed preachers today uh, being found in the scriptures, Hillary again hits the nail on the head the gift of God is being demonstrated through faith Right? Sola fide, in Christ, Christ alone, by grace alone. I mean, this is just the solos of the Reformation are here 1,500 years beforehand.
1: Absolutely. And could it be, I'll respond to your question, could it be that Calvin was also reading the same scripture as Hillary? (laughs) I
2: would agree. (laughs) Maybe Calvin was commenting on Hillary. (laughs) It <laughs> good very well be. Of course, Hillary is now known as Hillary the Calvinist, right? <laughs>
0: exactly. Did uh, Calvin know the... Uh, he knew the church fathers quite well, didn't he?
2: Especially Augustine. Absolutely. Extensively quoted them.
1: Yeah, from memory. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he had a, a, an unbelievable photographic memory. Uh, and, as a matter of fact, in one of his debates with a Roman Catholic, I believe it was a bishop, he had listened and listened and listened. And, and uh, Farrell had been trying to get him to get up and respond to this guy because he kept saying the Reformers do not know the church fathers. And when Calvin finally got fed up on the third day, he got up and he just rebukes this guy and says, it is you who do not know the fathers. And he begins to quote them. He's quoting them and he tells them where he's quoting them from, which translation, uh, what year it was published. And he just goes down the list and he quotes and he explains and quotes and explains. That day... Ten priests took off their garb and walked over to the Protestant Reformation and said, we will not be a member of that church any longer. And eventually yeah. that bishop also converted. Because, in the city voted to go Calvinistic, go Reformed, rather than going with the Roman Catholic Church. They completely repudiated their position with Rome. Because Calvin showed them, we do know the Father's we do know what they taught and you're not teaching what the fathers taught. The Reformation is the continuation of the church fathers. As a matter of fact, Calvin referred to himself often as an Augustinian. So I guess Calvin wasn't a Calvinist, he was an Augustinian and the rest of us have been Calvinists who have been following Augustine. Uh, minor some of the errors that he had. We've rejected it completely out of the well, church by now. I think this, now.
0: Uh, this little uh, testimony <clears throat> about that particular event uh, uh, certainly sheds some light on what we're discussing at the moment. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, let me move on. Tertullian wrote, We have been predestined by God before the world was To appear in the extreme end of times. And so we are trained by God for the purpose of chastising the world. It's interesting. Tertullian himself identifies the electing grace of God in his decree of predetermining those people whom he hath elected before the foundation of the world For the purpose that they will appear at the end times. They will be brought back from the grave. Resurrected. As he appears, so we shall appear like him. Here again, the thing that I I really like to emphasize is each of these men are talking about the purposes of God. When we live in a world where God has no purposes, or at best, God has desires, but it really is left to men to help God see those desires. Whereas they're talking from the perspective of the purpose and the will of God can't be thwarted. How much different the theology of that day was. And I think because they elevated God for who He is, high regard and respect, our God is a God who is sovereign, our God who has created all things, rules over everything. To put themselves in a position To say, God has to kowtow to us. He sits in heaven and he, you know, rubs his hands together going, Oh, I don't know what's going to happen next. Will these people follow me or not? The whole concept is, we have a God who is greater than men. He's the God who rules his creation. He's a God who in creating had a purpose. And especially in redemption, he had a purpose of bringing a people to himself. And he has predetermined their redemption, even to the ends of time. Which is interesting, because Dr. Matt, in there, is another little Calvinistic theology. That the calling of God is ongoing to the believer. Now, I think the King James Version in Romans 8.28 really perverts it when it says that we are the called. Which is a passive if I'm not mistaken, it's a passive feminine use. It's really masculine. In the Geneva Bible, they translate it, we are being called. The purpose of God is always being fulfilled in His calling us to Himself to the end of time.
2: Here you see element of that in Tertullian. What's your thought? Well, the interesting part here is that we know that uh, he, he, Paul will continue the Romans eight twenty eight idea also into Romans chapter nine um, in dealing with his elect, seeing how the world is unfolding and why things are happening the way that they do, demonstrating his power, demonstrating all of these things going on. Uh, Paul says uh, also in First Corinthians 6 that we're going to judge angels. We'll be part and partial to the judgment. And we are right now being trained by God for the purpose of that aspect of the final consummation of all things. And so looking at all of how Tertullian is dealing with that, you know, God is taking out an elect people, um, Even though we're dealing with difficult circumstances, difficult times, whatever might be happening to us at a particular time or what happened to God's people or individual Christians throughout the history of the church, all things are working for good to them that love God and that are called according to his purpose. And he's demonstrating his wrath on the vessels of destruction so that the mercy that he pours out on his elect can be even more clearly seen, which is an amazing concept in and of itself, which I think is what Tertullian is leaning towards here. We've been predestined uh, before the world, before anything had been created, to appear here, even in his thoughts, at the extreme end of times, and we're being trained as God's church militant now to be triumphant upon the consummation of the world.
1: You know, so far we've seen under this topic the sovereignty of God. We have seen the purpose of God, the teleological meanings uh, that God has given to His creation, and His purpose to bring it to an end. We have seen that God has decreed all things that belong to man, that He has in redemption predestined men whom He hath elected to Himself. Clearly, the seed forms of what eventually will be formulated as what? is known as Calvinistic theology, have so far been very demonstrated. Let us turn our attention now to another doctrine of total depravity. Irenaeus, again quoting him, writes, By means of our first parent, we were all brought into bondage by being made subject to death. That God, he goes on to say, was true, and the serpent a liar, was proved by the result. For death came upon those who had eaten. Along with the fruit, they fell under the power of death because they ate in disobedience. And disobedience to God entails death. For that reason, they came under the penalty of death. What's your thoughts on Irenaeus' statement here concerning original sin and depravity as it has affected man?
2: Well, I think uh, preachers today in general need to take a lesson from Irenaeus and what he's speaking of here concerning Adam as representative. Um, Because most of the time, if you ask Christians why they're sinners, they think that they're sinners because they sin. And (laughs) instead, Irenaeus, in contradistinction to that, is teaching federal headship. Uh, He's teaching that Adam was chosen as our representative by God And because of what it was that happened in the garden with that representative, we are all brought into bondage and we're all made subject to death. Um, I think that, you know, just that idea alone uh, on many different theological planes and in many different theological books that are coming out today on all sorts of different topics is just absent. Uh, really it's some kind of semi-Pelagian or some kind of Pelagian idea that is permeating the way the church really thinks about sin and sinfulness. Uh, We're born these blank slates, and as we sin, uh, we start to get those sin marks, and the the circle begins to be filled up with uh, the sin marks, and we become sinners as we continue to sin. And and uh, that just does not square with what the scriptures teach at all. Romans 5 is very clear. Romans 3 is very clear. Um, along with the fruit, as Irenaeus said, they fell under the power of death because they ate in disobedience. And disobedience to God entails death. And for that reason, they came under the penalty of death. And, and we, thus we do. So as Adam took that test and failed that test, as our representative, we in turn are under the curse and are fallen, irregardless of whether or not uh, we enact a single sin ever, we're already headed for hell and damnation as a result of the curse that Adam enacted upon us. Uh, a lot of times people say, well, that's not fair, because they don't like the idea of federal headship or having a representative that way, because they think they could do better having, you know, hindsight's always twenty-twenty. So they're thinking that because they, they understand what we're saying, that they could go back and kind of fix that problem. Where God specifically chose our first parents being without sin, perfect in that way, mutable, but still perfect having no sin at all, and yet fell. Right. Uh, we who are already fallen are not going to do any better than what the perfect choice that God had in the garden as our representative made for us. Unfortunately, it was the fall, but fortunately for us, God had already decreed before the foundations of the world, as we already heard, as a result of that uh, fallenness, to have that savior who is christ uh come and be our second adam which we'll talk about in a minute i don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves
1: well dr Matt, you know i think it's very important also to realize and i think you're putting the emphasis here because you're saying some people need to go back and take a look at this if you alter the doctrine of depravity it's of necessity that you change the way of salvation. Sure. Because what is required of one demands the other one must meet that requirement. Here with Irenaeus, you have a clear statement that the act of disobedience in eating the forbidden fruit and violating the commandment is what subjected not only Adam, but his whole posterity to sin. And thus, right. the penalty of death, both physical and spiritual, that Man is formed first from the form, uh, from the dust of the ground, then given the breath of life. In the incarnation, we have the Son of God taking oneself the form of man to represent the Godhead bodily. Here again, the necessity of this whole man being represented here in the first and second Adam that you just mentioned, the whole man to the whole Christ. Christ must resurrected in order to bring the resurrection of the eternal inheritance promised to us through the Spirit to pass in the redeeming of the whole man, in the particularities of each individual, that he is seen both as man, body and soul, not just a soul. And within that context, death becomes very important. If death is not both physical and spiritual, then the concept of salvation as we define it in the teaching of Scripture within the reform context has got to be altered every time we alter it we have to change other doctrines to fit it because no, yes, if there's not there's no systematics whatsoever
2: of understanding no, there's a, truth there's a total domino effect that happens because once you take away federal headship once you take away that adam is our representative and as a result of his work and his work alone the entire human race falls into damnation and hell without being saved in some way, um, if you take that away, then all you have is people who do bad things who then need to do something good to uh, redeem themselves in some way and what not a better way to do that than just to uh, choose to follow Jesus in the way that he has set for you to go to heaven based on the choice that you make not to do the bad, but to do the good. And... uh, you know, believe in the cross and believe for your salvation. It just the domino effect starts to happen because if you take away that idea, everything else starts to change. And, and you can't do that. You take, even if we go back a step and you say we take away the sovereignty of God, everything changes. If you take away this particular point, uh, Adam's fall, everything changes. Uh, that you start getting into Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism and Arminianism. So it's it's exceedingly important not to get these fundamental doctrines uh, correct when you're looking at salvation.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Let's move on because we're running run out of time. Let's go to the atonement. Justin Martyr wrote on the necessity of the incarnation of Jesus Christ to redeem us from sin. He wrote this, and I quote: "Corruption became inherent in nature, so it was necessary that he." who wished to save us, would be someone who destroyed the essential cause of corruption. And this could not be done other than by the life that is according to nature being united to that which had received corruption. For this would destroy the corruption. At the same time, it would preserve the body that had received it with immortality for the future. Therefore, it was necessary that the word would become possessed of a body. This was so he could deliver us from the death of natural corruption.
2: Your thoughts on that? There's a a lot of things happening here in this paragraph. You're talking about the nature of Christ. You're talking about the word. You're talking about um, one person, two natures, how that works out. uh, The corruption that we were basically destroyed under and... He comes to save us. The incarnation is often attacked because if you do away with Christ and the incarnation of God in human nature, you dispel the gospel. The gospel goes away. There is no gospel. Uh, We know that the blood of bulls doesn't save, so the word became flesh and the world dwelt among us. And he is forever the sacrifice of his people because only an infinite, untainted human sacrifice willingly coming for sin could atone for sin against an infinite God who's holy and requires an infinite sacrifice. So only God could have done this. Um, therefore, and th- which is why I like the way Justin says, therefore it was necessary that the Word right. would become possessed of a body, that he could deliver us from the death of natural corruption. You know, Dr.
1: Matt, there's a teaching going on today by some that says when God, um, through the giving of the second person of the Godhead, to come and to dwell in bodily form, that that taking on the bodily form extended and transformed the being of God because he is added to himself. And that's a real misunderstanding of the very nature of the Incarnation. As you had mentioned, the essential aspect of this is the hypostatic union by which we have God the Son um, in his relationship to being holy God and holy man. That the taking on upon the part of man does not affect the triune God in any sense or form, nor does it extend him, but it is the manifestation in that the necessity of redemption has to come in the fact that the first fall is a forensic act. It's a disobedience against what God commanded. And in that transgression, it needed redemption by another forensic mean. But that means must be that the second Adam has to fulfill what the first could not do. And that is obey the law. But that, that hypostatic union is and was essential to think about the amount of time that was spent on dealing with the essence of the two natures of Christ that they had to ensure that one did not oversee the other, or so far split from each other, that you lose them. Here again, once you do that, then you have to change your soteriology to meet what you have affected. Right. That's so important. and And it's amazing what men will do and what they will strip away in order to try to maintain their doctrines they want to keep to the point of actually moving themselves to unorthodox positions that essentially erode any form of historic Christianity. Irenaeus wrote concerning the necessity of bodily redemption. When he became incarnate and was made man, He began anew the long line of human beings and he furnished us with salvation so that what we had lost in Adam we recover in Jesus Christ. What we recover is the likeness and image of God. Your comment, sir?
2: This is a great quote in that the recovery or the the image of God being lost not in the sense that it's lost as in gone but lost as in corrupted. Yes, And what Christ does is he, he recovers us so that the likeness and image of God can reflect God's glory back to him in a way that a perfect mirror would, having Christ's radiance in the fullness of his glory in us, reflecting back to God the radiance of his worth. So we're being made in the likeness of Jesus Christ, who's the firstborn among many brethren in this regard, and the recovery of the image lost in Adam is gained again in Jesus Christ through all of his salvation and through all of his keeping of the law, through his sacrifice, through his resurrection, through his current administration and reign
1: and you know dr matt um, origin speaks to this concept of of Adam, the transgression, but he speaks to what I was just talking about concerning taking upon the form of man and that hypostatic union, but the intent and purposes in redemption of the whole man. Listen to what he says, and I quote him. As death came through one man, so also the justification of life is through one man. Had he not assumed humanity, we could not have received such a benefit we
2: have from the Logos. It really speaks to that point, doesn't it? Very much so. You know, you have here depravity, justification through Christ's incarnation and the benefits of redemption. Um, same Bible as the reformers would have had, with the same information being taught here. Uh, justification of life is through one man. Um, maybe a little bit of a practical spin where Origen said that he had not assumed, had he not assumed humanity, we would not have received the benefit that we have from the Logos. You know, a lot of people, when they think about what Jesus did, they they often see the domino effect falling into practical areas, for example, like the doctrine of hell. And I know that's a little bit off subject from the doctrine of depravity here, but in terms of depravity, uh, unless somebody is regenerated and saved, they go to hell. And people think, well, we go to hell, but i've I've only lived on the Earth for eighty years, and i've don only done eighty years' worth of sins. Why are my eighty years' worth of sins going to retain me for an infinite period of time in hell as a result of god's judgment that way well it's the It's the benefit of the logos that Origen is writing about that rescues us from that infinite wrath through his infinite sacrifice to the infinite god who is infinitely holy and infinitely angry at every sin that we commit against him so as death comes through one man i mean it was one sin that adam made in the garden but it was infinite in nature because it was made against an infinite god so also justification of life is through christ and he is the infinite sacrifice for that infinite sin And so I think this is not only dead on, but this is something that people should start putting in their signature lines and emails and sending it off to people when they write letters. This is a great little quote. Had Christ not assumed humanity, had he not come as the God-man, we would not have received such a benefit as we have from the Word, the Logos. You know,
1: add to that, Irenaeus again writing says, he came to save all by means of himself. I'm referring to all who through him are born again to God. He goes on to state, The Lord took dust from the earth and formed man. For that reason, he who is the word, desiring to recapitulate, Adam in himself rightly received a birth. For this enabled him to gather up Adam from Mary, who was as yet a virgin. If the former was taken from the dust, Adam, and God was his maker, it was necessary that the second also, making a recapitulation in himself, should be formed as man by God. For if he had not received the substance of flesh from a human being, he would have been neither man nor the son of man. And if he was not made into what we are, he did not great thing in which he suffered. In other words, he did not do that great thing in which he suffered and endured. But everyone will allow that we are a body taken from the earth and a soul receiving spirit from God. Therefore, the word of God was made into this too, thereby recapitulating in himself his own handiwork. I think clearly what you have here with Irenaeus is again an affirmation of the necessity of atonement coming through the shedding of blood that without that shedding of blood, there is no redemption. Tertullian said, grace with the Lord, and once learned and undertaken by should never afterwards be canceled by the reputation uh, re- repetition of sin. We, because of the grace that has been given to us through the work of Jesus Christ, need to know how we are to live. And in that statement, he goes on to, to add to that concept of the redemption. That there is an eternal life that is given to us. Here again, eternal salvation. Doctrines being taught. It's amazing, Dr. Mad, that in the first three centuries of the church, here we have such plain doctrinal teachings that, as you rightfully said, could have been simply opening Calvin's institutes and reading from them because they clearly mirror his teaching. And that's because he not only studied the Scripture... But he came to the same conclusion through his own exegesis. He studied also the fathers. Not that the fathers were infallible, but he knew that great men had walked before him who had spent time in exegeting the scripture, searching it out, trying to understand what were those essential doctrines that make up the Christian faith. And so you see this unanimity, this coherency and cogency in the teaching that is actually quite amazing, do you not believe?
2: I find this to uh, not only be an amazing quotation, but also uh, the beginning here is very blatant and not only blatant, but correcting as well. Because Irenaeus not only gave a statement of what it is that Jesus came to do, but he also gave a corrective statement to the effectiveness and extent mm-hmm. of who Jesus came to do this for. Uh, it's uh, just to read it again, he came to save all by means of himself. And then he says, I am referring to all who through him are born again to God. Right. Uh, which is already a limiting statement on the extent of the atonement. Absolutely. Which is uh, amazingly clear. And then it continues on talking about what he did in suffering and enduring and taking a body and uh, being the one to recapitulate God's handiwork to bring them back into a glorious state. So it's interesting that Jesus came specifically to die on behalf of those who through him are born again to God.
1: It's a vicarious or substitutionary death can only be accomplished by Christ through the incarnation in order to redeem man that in that atonement it has a direct purpose. Again, the concept of God's purpose in Christ and the purpose by which he hath elected a people to be in Christ brought through him Not apart from him. He doesn't make a way for salvation. He is the salvation. That through him, as you point out, his atonement is directed to those who are to be born again, who are the elect of God. For he has already spoken about the fact that these are the elect of God. Truly, it is amazing. We have seen in just the few doctrines that we've had time to look at how much of what eventually is formulated by John Calvin and other reformers was found in the early teachings of the church, Dr. Matt, do you have any final comments on what we've covered today
2: I, Yes, I'd like to just say uh, one one little point, one aspect that I think it's also important to to note
1: absolutely that. Go ahead
2: the early church fathers had certain conceptions that differed from the historical context of the middle ages or the reformation Mm -hmm. Uh, you know and in this way many of the terms and ideas that they utilize theologically speaking are sometimes housed differently yes for example and we didn't cover these particular quotes but like for example the term regeneration to the early church fathers meant the entirety of the Christian life or what we might mean as parts of sanctification right and in looking at things like that that clears up a huge amount of problematic passages that most people wouldn't even understand if they read them or would twist to mean something else or to simply say hey these guys didn't really believe regeneration in the way that the reformers did or the way you did they believe something different so you know even in our day or even as far back as the reformation that the term regeneration for example is used more specifically of the initial step of conversion and the change of heart by the spirit of god you know the the early church had some of these terms housed a little bit differently and what what we need to see is that christ taught the same gospel that Augustine believed, that Irenaeus believed, that Gottschalk believed, that Luther believed, that Calvin, the Puritans, the Princeton theology, ourselves, uh, or even the people who are listening to this uh, program, it is up to the student to work out a historical theology that is consistent based on a thoughtful representation of the historical context for every period that they are learning about in church history. So even though we go back and we quote all of these different fathers we see some of the very plain teachings that they had we also have to be aware that as we read the voluminous volumes of their writings mm-hmm. that they said a lot of a lot of things and those things have to be taken in context and the student has to be careful about the way that they read some of their present day ideas into what the early church fathers said or how they taught something
1: and you have to remember they they are gathering and canonizing the text of scripture and so when you get to the later time periods we're looking at teachings that had never had time to have gone back and to review the concept of the canon of the new testament and relate it to the old testament so that you have formulations that even up to the time of calvin are only being cast forth in what we would consider a more consistent understanding uh, would have been very helpful to them had they had the scriptures and had two or three hundred years of, of interpretation going on, which is what I think makes them so amazing, that in essence we find these seed form doctrines clearly being taught that, as you said, could have been taken out of the page of the Institutes often. Uh, and yet we know that there are areas that, that they worked through, that they labored with, areas they couldn't figure out how to reconcile them. And uh, you see that all the way up to the time of Luther, and, and finally, with, with Calvin and the writing and the teaching of the system of theology that we call Calvinism today, in its full-blown corpus, is a doctrine that doesn't see the problems of contradiction, etc. It sees that its goal is systematic coherency of all the various doctrines, that everything is like a puzzle when you get it and put it in its right place and work it out. There is a full-blown picture. A real understanding that is being manifested out of the scripture. And so you have to have all the parts. And as they labored to do those very things and to reconcile those things, I think you see a change in the way they approached scripture at that time during Calvin and those who followed him, the Calvinists of the Reformation, as they were called Calvinists because they were following his rather than Luther's position in, in the Reformation. And so... It is amazing to see how the early church has so much of this in seed form, yet not refined, which really is something that we have to take and, and keep in mind. Even today, though I would say clearly we have the essentials of our faith, we have refined them over and over again. We constantly are seeking. Is there a way to give greater specificity? Not to change the essence, but to make it more clear and more precise.
2: We never lose that responsibility. Right. And just for a help for those who are listening, uh, if I could just interject this as well. Sure, go right ahead. I know that we've we've quoted a lot of the early church fathers, and uh, people will have to go back and and listen to this a couple of times to kind of get all of those quotes. But I've also taken uh, all of these quotes and some others from the early church and posted them. Uh, in uh, anticipation of being able to talk about this on Calvinism today uh, at A Puritan's Mind so that they could also read some of these quotes for themselves. So if they go out to the main page of A Puritan's Mind at www.apuritansmind.com, uh, they'll see under the What's New section A a link there that says Calvinism and the early church and they can click on that and read all of the quotes that we just read and a few others that deal with some of the topics that we've talked about.
1: Excellent Dr. Matt.
2: Well we want to thank you
1: once again for coming and listening to our program Calvinism Today. We hope it's been informative and that it will continue as we develop it out that it will be very helpful to mature you in your Christian faith and understanding and in the practical applications that biblical theology ought to make in your life. It must be a balanced understanding of doctrine and practice. Uh, Also, if you have a chance, uh, whether you're listening through sermon audio or some other form that we've got out there or another website, don't forget to go to whitfieldmedia.com and visit our site. It's being developed. We're going to be working toward getting new things up in the near future. But we want to thank you for joining us in our broadcast of Calvinism today. We pray and ask that you would keep our ministry in your prayers before the Lord. Support it by telling others about the show. Dr. McMahon, Dr. Sullivan, thank you for your participation again in our program. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you in his grace. Are you considering seminary education? Let Whitfield Theological Seminary provide your educational needs. Whitfield offers master and doctoral degree programs through distance education in ministry, theological studies, biblical counseling, and Christian education. You can complete your studies for the ministry or other church vocations in the privacy of your home in conjunction with your local church. For students who have never been to college, check out the Bachelor Divinity Degree Program. Whitfield also offers lay study programs. Go to www.whitfield.edu for additional information. Remember, Whitfield offers classical Reformed theological education. Whitfield Theological Seminary, training a new generation of ministers around the world to disciple the nations in the theology of the Reformation.
3: Parents, Are you looking for a college to send your children to in the near future? Hi, I'm Dr. Randall Talbot, the Executive Vice President and Academic Dean of Whitfield College. Let me share with you why I think you should consider Whitfield College. First, Whitfield brings a Christian college education home to you. We are a distant, learning, online institution. Second, Whitfield provides a biblical worldview college education. Third, affordability. Because we are a distance learning institution, we can provide a high academic education that you can afford. The average tuition for most online colleges is $300 or more per credit hour. At Whitfield, we charge $80 per credit hour. Fourth, Graduates from Whitfield College are highly educated in the majors that we provide. We have graduates that have entered graduate schools all across the country in various different fields. Institutions like the University of Massachusetts of North Dartmouth, Liberty University Law School, and various seminaries. If you would like further information, you may visit the Whitfield College website at Whitfield College. Dot org, or you may call the college offices at 863-683-7899. I am looking forward to hearing from you.
2: A Puritan's Mind is a website dedicated to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of God. Located at www.apuritansmind.com Its purpose is to help those visitors, over 50 million since 1998, to enjoy God and His gracious gospel of redemption through Jesus Christ. It's called A Puritan's Mind because it houses one of the largest selections of writings from the 17th century, covering Christian authors such as Alexander Henderson, Samuel Rutherford, Jeremiah Burroughs, and a whole host of Westminster ministers of the Puritan age. But that's not all. There are sections on the website on church history, historical theology, and doctrinal aspects covering justification, the doctrines of grace, family worship, Christian stewardship, and much, much more. A Puritan's mind has even reached out over into the reformed book market with Puritan publications. We have published over a dozen works, including The Covenant of God by Thomas Blake, and one of the most popular introductions to covenant theology called A Simple Overview of Covenant Theology by Dr. Matthew McMahon. All works are available in digital formats as well. You can even acquire an all-in-one special DVD that contains many out of print works, sermons, and books from the Puritans and Reformers. Visit us at www.apuritansmind.com for more information and do all to the glory of God.
0: You've been listening to Whitfield Radio. Whitfield Radio is a division of Whitfield College and Theological Seminary. Music is provided by our friend, Dr. Phil Kagey, and we encourage you to visit his website at philkagey.com. P-H-I-L-K-E-A-G-G-Y dot com. This is Dr. Bill Sullivan saying thank you for joining us And check out our website for the next scheduled show. Our website is whitfieldmedia.com W-H-I-T-E-F-I-E-L-D-M-E-D-I-A dot com whitfieldmedia.com